Some of the most loved passages of scripture and images from the Bible are those related to shepherding. I think we have sort of this fascination with the cute little lambs. I think there's probably a lot more to it than just the cute little lambs. I think it involved a lot of long, hot days and long, cold nights. Probably involved a lot of danger, a lot of sweat, and a lot of toil. But the cute little lambs, come on. And so we have these kind of fascination with what it is to, to be a shepherd. Obviously, people in the ancient Near East and ancient Israel were very familiar with shepherding, as many of them were shepherds. And many of Israel's patriarchs and leaders came from a shepherding background. Abraham kept flocks, and Jacob kept his uncle Laban's sheep, Moses who eventually would lead Israel like a flock out of slavery in Egypt, was a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years prior to that. And perhaps the best-known shepherd was King David himself, who eventually, after being a shepherd, became king of Israel and used shepherding image in, imagery in what may be the most well-known passage in the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Today we come to a famous use of this image when Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd. This is the last scene in the middle of the book of John in, a, in what's often known as a festival cycle. Jesus has shown up on Sabbaths and festivals in the, in the book of John and he's claimed things about himself. In chapter 5, he healed a lame man on the Sabbath in Jerusalem and claimed that he had authority to work on the Sabbath just like his father does, thereby claiming to be equal to God. In chapter 6, as the Passover festival approached, Jesus multiplied bread and fish and fed 5,000 and then claimed to be the bread that comes down from heaven and that you can't live, really live, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood. In chapter seven, at the Feast of Booths, where a daily water ceremony was performed, Jesus stood up and claimed that he is the living water. In chapter eight, still at the Feast of Booths, when huge torches were lit in the temple courtyards, symbolizing God's presence in the wilderness among his people, as he led them out with a pillar of fire by night, Jesus claimed that he is the light of the world. In chapter nine, Jesus wrapped some of this imagery together while still at the Feast of Booths, and he heals a blind man, making clay, rubbing it on his eyes, telling him to go wash it off in the water of the pool of Siloam, and the man came back seeing. He came from darkness into the light of God. And now in chapter 10, we find Jesus still in Jerusalem, probably at the end of the festival or the Feast of Booths, but he evidently remained there for a while because in verse 22, we read that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, which was about three months later. The Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah as it's more commonly called, is a celebration of the rededication of the temple during the Maccabean period after it had been desecrated by uh, some Greek rulers. The period leading up to that point was a time of trouble. It was a time of great compromise in Israel and among Israel's own leadership. The successor to Alexander the Great and his Greek empire, uh, his successors were vying for power and the Jews were often caught up in the middle of their, uh, their struggle for power and for dominance in this empire. And one of the tactics that they used to ensure that people in their empire remained submissive was to try and to spread a common culture and a common language among all of them. This was a process known at the time as Hellenization or the spread of Greek culture 
sometimes very forcefully among people. And many Jews and Jewish religious leaders like the priests fell into compromise during this period because they were being Hellenized or they were adopting aspects of Greek culture and abandoning the truths that God had revealed in the scripture. And at various points, the Jews were not allowed to do things like practice circumcision or read the Bible aloud in public or do other things that set them apart from other cultures around them. And things got really bad when a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes captured Jerusalem and proceeded to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. Some of the priests were passive about this and were even complicit in compromised as a result of the pressure that they felt uh, because of the Hellenization that was coming in. But there was an uprising, an uprising of Jews who wanted to return to God's ways. And they were led, it was led by a family known as the Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus retook the temple in December 24, 164 BC, and he cleansed it. And that's the background for the festival of Hanukkah that the Jews have been celebrating ever since. And because many of the priests and leaders were corrupt at the time these events occurred, Ezekiel 34 became part of the readings in the synagogues uh, during, the, during the festival of Hanukkah or the festival of dedication. Here's a sample from Ezekiel 34, 2-4. Thus says the Lord, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. It's against this backdrop that John wants us to read Jesus' claims to be the good shepherd. God promised to shepherd his people with a ruler like King David, and Jesus is claiming to be that leader. Even more in this passage, he claims to be the Lord himself who has come to shepherd his true people. And with that background in mind, let's read the opening imagery that Jesus uses in John chapter 10. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus jumps right into this imagery after the incidents of chapter 9. I'll remind you that the Pharisees had kicked out of the synagogue the blind man that Jesus had healed because he believed in Jesus. And after telling them that they were blind, even if they thought they could see, Jesus now confronts them with the imagery of shepherding, implying that they should have been helping and healing and guiding God's people, but were instead using God's people. They were not shepherds, they were thieves and robbers, Jesus says. But there was a true shepherd who had come to God's people. They didn't understand this figure of speech. They didn't get what Jesus was trying to say by this image immediately. And so Jesus began to spell it out for them. And to make sense of what Jesus will say, we have to notice that Jesus is not simply explaining the parable. 
If he was doing that, it wouldn't make any sense because then he would be calling himself the gate and the shepherd and other things simultaneously. What he's doing is he's taking images or he's taking pictures from this image of shepherding and he's using different parts of that to talk about who he is and what he has come to do. He'll talk about himself as the door. He'll talk about himself as the shepherd. He will reveal that he is the son of God and this is why you should follow the good shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, 7 to 10, Jesus began again to say to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Flocks of sheep faced all kinds of dangers in the wilderness. These were not the lush green pastures of Ireland that we might get into our minds when we think of shepherding. They weren't using sheep dogs and things like that. The wilderness where sheep grazed were closer to what we would imagine as a desert or on the edge of a desert. The terrain was treacherous. Flash floods were a threat during certain times of the year. Wild animals lurked, ready to pick off stragglers and strays, and thieves were a threat as well. And so to protect against all of these dangers, shepherds would often look for a place where they could kind of corral their sheep, usually using some kind of feature of the natural terrain. Often they might use a ravine that would be covered on three sides. So they would bring their sheep into a ravine and then to protect the fourth side, they might build something like a, a stack of a, a wall made of stacked stones. And so that they would be able to protect their sheep on all four sides. It might be warmer because it would be protected from the wind and it would be protected from thieves and from wild animals as well. In fact, sometimes a shepherd would even lay down in that doorway at night so that nothing could get into the sheep except coming through that shepherd first. In other words, the shepherd himself became the door into and out of that sheepfold. And this is the imagery that Jesus invites us to consider concerning himself. He is the gate. And Jesus' description of those who came before him as thieves and as robbers probably refers to the religious leaders who were not directing people toward God, but were actually taking advantage of God's people. His words not only describe but act as a warning to us that we ought to watch out for thieves. Sadly, not everyone who claims to be spiritual or a religious person or to speak on behalf of God actually cares about God's people. This was evident in the compromise of the religious leaders during the period when Hanukkah originated, as we were talking about earlier. It was evident in the continued compromise and greed of the priests and the self-righteous and prejudiced legalism of many of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. It's evident in the selfish, greedy, covetous perversion of prosperity gospel teachers today. It's evident in the cowardice and compromise of liberal Christianity which denies the resurrection or the second coming of Christ and substitutes the worship of the creature for the worship of the creator and they promote sexual immorality and, and sin as love. I know that John 10.10 is often used to, to describe or in reference to the devil and it probably fits what the devil does but Jesus spoke it in reference to the bad shepherds of Israel. 
and it fits the bad shepherds that still exist today. They come to steal and kill and destroy. You should be on the lookout for these kinds of thieves. They are people who want to lead you away from Christ and not toward Christ. They are those whose motives and lives aren't conformed to Jesus, but to their own greed and the world. And this calls for discernment in our lives. You don't want to turn into like Statler and Waldorf. You know who those guys are? They're the, the critics from the Muppets who never have a kind thing to say, only laugh at their own jokes, and are easily offended whenever they're confronted about their bad attitudes. You don't want to become like these guys in regard to all leadership. If you are cynical of all leadership, then you make growth and unity and the mission of God very, very difficult. Hebrews 13, 17 instructs us to Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you are antagonistic and skeptical of church leadership by default, then you may short-circuit the purpose of that leadership for you and the church. If you can't be encouraged or challenged or corrected without offense, you can't disagree without being angry, then you're not submitting to the legitimate means of growth that God has given the church. But the other side of that coin is to recognize that not all so-called leaders have your best interest at heart. There are those who want to steal and kill and destroy. Most of the time, these leaders, these religious people are after money or power, one of those two things. When you hear a leader talk about how you should never question him or her, claiming a place over you rather than beside you, that's a warning sign. If they start guaranteeing you money, if you'll just plant a seed in their ministry, be very careful. If they use the phrase, don't touch God's anointed or don't question God's prophet, run away from that person. That is a false prophet, for sure. That person neither understands how to interpret scripture properly, nor has the well-being of the flock at heart. Here's how you hone your power of leadership discernment. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, John 10.3. Learn to hear the voice of the good shepherd. Or to use the imagery of verses 7 to 10, don't go through any door that isn't guarded by Jesus. Learn what his voice sounds like. Learn what he wants. How do you do that? Humbly read his word. That's the primary way you learn to recognize the voice of the shepherd. Bible teacher Gary Burge writes, when someone makes a claim on the sheep, when a new voice emerges over the horizon, the first question we should ask is whether this voice echoes the voice of Jesus we know in the scriptures. Don't just take a leader's word for it. Consider what they say and what they do next to Jesus. Every leader has flaws. So don't try to hold them to a standard of perfectionism that you can't attain yourself, but ask whether this teaching, this new idea, this charismatic personality is leading you toward Christ-likeness or is leading you toward something else. Another telltale sign of a thief is which gate he wants you to go through. Jesus said, I am the door, or I am the gate. He is the only way to salvation and to eternal life. And if someone is leading you in a way that does not include Jesus, or that 
says that he is a way, but he is not the way, or that in addition to going through Jesus, there is also another teaching that you need to add to Jesus that is a thief. These kinds of false teachers are everywhere. And for seasoned Christians, this may not come as a surprise. It may seem like a no-brainer to you because you've heard it for so long and so often, but Jesus is the only entrance to eternal life. However, we should be aware that culturally, this kind of spiritual or moral exclusivity is still considered unacceptable. We're happy to have exclusive seating, exclusive dining, exclusive theme park experiences, exclusive clubs, exclusive schools, but culture will not tolerate exclusive religion. We should be careful with this idea. Exclusive clubs and exclusive schools imply that if I'm in, it's because I've done something or paid something to deserve it, but not so with eternal life. If I'm in, it's because Jesus has done something to deserve it, and I've come through him. He is the door. The way is open to all who will believe in Jesus, but he is the only way. So it's inclusive in that it's open to all who will believe, but it is exclusive in that it is only through Jesus. He is the door to eternal, abundant life. And in verse 10, the word abundant means superfluous or more than is necessary. And the specifics of what Jesus meant by this word may be more understandable if we understand it within the image he was using, this pastoral or shepherding metaphor. In contrast to the hired hands who we'll hear about shortly, who only do the minimum of what's necessary for the sheep to, excuse me, to survive, Jesus goes beyond that. He protects and he gently leads. He offers fullness of life because he is the life. He is the life that he wants to give to the sheep. This ramps up the claim of exclusivity. Thieves may not only be people, but thieves can be ideas, they can be philosophies, they can be promises of culture that claim to be able to give you life, claims to provide identity and purpose or meaning are claims that, that they say oh, these things can give you life. My idea, my philosophy, my practice can give you life. And philosophies that promote being true to yourself are claims to give life. The greed and covetousness that guide many in our culture, those things claim to be able to give life. And while they are all leading away from Christ, they're leading in another direction, Jesus stands apart from those things, and he claims to be the gate that leads to abundant eternal life. Be careful about the cultural ideas and philosophies that you unwittingly allow to influence you. Beware of the harmless cultural ideas that you are willing to follow. Jesus' exclusive claim stands today as it always has, and his sheep don't walk through the gate as if they deserve it because of their intellectual prowess or their spiritual acumen, but they walk through the gate humbly the way that's been, through the way that's been made by the good shepherd. As believers in Jesus who seek to follow the good shepherd, what we recognize is that there is only one way to eternal life, and that way is through Jesus himself. And that all who claim another way are false teachers. They are thieves and they are robbers. And we need to learn the voice of the shepherd so that we do not enter by a different door or try to enter by a different door.
Jesus has carried the door image as far as he can. The door protects by keeping out thieves and robbers and only allowing in that which is good for the sheep. However, Jesus' care extends beyond the basics of just protection. He offers life beyond just what's necessary. And the shepherd image, rather than just the door image, is probably a better image for communicating what that life is. Let's look at verses 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Here's the main reason that you follow the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. In this way, he's incomparable to any other shepherd. A a, a good shepherd, a bad shepherd, a thief, a robber, an under-shepherd. Jesus is incomparable to all of them. No leader or authority, even good ones, can do this the way Jesus did. This is unique to him. And so he is uniquely the good shepherd. Other shepherds may legitimately call you to follow, but only as they follow Jesus. Think of the personal intimacy and care that this image of Jesus as the good shepherd communicates. We know that Jesus is more than just a man who was sent from God. He is the son of God. He is the word made flesh as John has already described. And as he will say in a moment, I and the father are one. Jesus' divinity adds even more potency to the image. The son of God cares for his sheep by laying his life down for them. Now, obviously, Jesus was talking about his death by crucifixion. By his death, his flock will be saved. Remember when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now it's as if the shepherd becomes the lamb on behalf of his flock, taking their place, laying down his life for them. But notice, Jesus does not only lay down his life. Verse 17 says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus not only foretells his death here, he foretells his resurrection, that he will rise again. Jesus was not just born to die. He was born to be resurrected. He came that we may have life through him, abundant life through him, full life through Jesus. And notice that this story of Jesus is not a tragedy. Jesus is not subject 
to just the currents and the sweeping of culture. He is not subject just to the whims of the people that are around him. No doubt, they do have responsibility for how they killed and murdered Jesus. And we have responsibility for the sin and rebellion that we commit against God. But Jesus is not a tragedy. His story is not tragic. It is the story not of someone who came and people just abused him and and he didn't know what to do and, and it was so sad. No, his story is one where he knew beforehand he was coming to lay down his life so that he could take it up again. And so contrary to when we watch a a drama or a tragedy and the, the character is just subject to the will of other people, Jesus is not doing that. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was getting himself into and he came in order that he might do it. And before this can be an effective example to us, before his death for us can be an effective example, we need to know that it was done for us. You cannot effectively follow Jesus if you don't know that he gave up his life for you and he took it up again to give you life. Yes, Jesus' life is an example for us, but his life is more than just an example for us. It's also the source of power that allows us to follow his example. When the good shepherd leads, I don't just follow because he seems like a a decent sort of fellow. I follow because he laid down his life for me and then he took his life up again and it was, he did that so that I could have abundant life. And this kind of knowledge goes beyond what's merely heard with the ears to what is perceived by the heart and is held onto by faith. When I say you need to know that Jesus died for you and that he was raised to new life so that you can have new life, I don't just mean you need to know that fact. I mean that that needs to grip your soul. It needs to hold on to you and and grab hold of you in such a way that you now have a, a renewed confidence to walk in life that you have a renewed sense of joy and purpose in life, that you understand the good shepherd laid down his life for me and he took up his life that I could follow him and have power to follow him. You need to know that. This is the knowledge that the apostle Paul was convinced of when he wrote, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean to say that he lays down his life so that he might take it up again? It means confidence for the sheep who follow him. It means assurance that nothing can separate us from his love. It means confidence in life and in death. Do you know that confidence? Perhaps you do, but it could use a little bit of a recharge. It could be sharpened today. Perhaps you don't know that confidence. Either way, what you need to do is meditate on this. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep so that he could take it up again and give abundant life to those 
who will believe. He's the son of God who died for you and took up his life again so that you could have new life in him. Let that grip your soul. Let it grip your soul like you imagine Jesus taking care of the sheep in his flock. Like you imagine him going after the one that left and leaving the 99. Let it grip you so that you have a confidence to say, Jesus laid down his life. The good shepherd laid down his life for this sheep so that he could take it up again and I could have new life. As we've seen so often in John's gospel, Jesus' conviction and clarity was misunderstood and people talked and argued about how to make sense of what Jesus was saying. Verses 20 to 21 indicate that some people thought he had a demon and was out of his mind. Others didn't think it possible for a man who had healed a blind man just a little while ago to have a demon. And at Hanukkah, Jesus was in the temple. He was in the courtyard, and people, John calls the Jews, probably indicating Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, they began to ask him to tell them directly if he was the Christ, if he was the expected Messiah of the Jews. It may seem odd to us that Jesus never comes out in the scripture and just goes, I'm the Messiah. He, he doesn't do that. And the reason was because many people had come before him making that very claim, and they were not good examples. They were bad shepherds. They were thieves and robbers. And he knew that many of the Jews had preconceptions about what the Messiah would do that didn't line up with what God had actually sent him to do. And so if he would have just stood up and said, I'm the Messiah, people would have understood all kinds of wrong things about that. And so rather than just taking the title to himself, Jesus teaches the people what the Messiah is really supposed to be like, what he really was supposed to come and to do. In verses 22 to 42, while Jesus does not say, I am the Messiah directly, he made some even bolder claims. He said that his sheep would hear his voice and follow him and no one could take them from him. He said that he would give them eternal life. He said that it was his father who gave the sheep to him and that no one could snatch them out of his hand. And then in verse 30, he stated, I and the father are one. Now this claim was not that Jesus and the father are the same person. That would be to deny what Jesus says elsewhere. Jesus is God and the father is God, but they are not the same person. Person. We affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that they are one being with three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while this concept wasn't clear to the Jews, they obviously took Jesus to mean something more than just, I do the Father's will. Because they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy, accusing him of making himself equal to God. Jesus took the opportunity to quote the Old Testament and point out how other beings were referred to as gods in the Old Testament, so why should they be angry with him for claiming to be the son of God? And this wasn't some kind of cheap gotcha moment or Jesus just trying to get out of their trap. Jesus was calling them. He wanted to point them to seriously consider his words, his works, and his signs and see that they validated his claims that he, the, the claims that he was making, that he is the son of God. But instead, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped to another place until Passover when his time would come to lay down his life for his sheep. Here's a further reason why you should follow the good shepherd, because he is the son of God. Jesus is sovereign. No one took his life from him. You could be a morally good shepherd and lose your life in a fight with a bear, 
or a thief, but you're a weak good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, not only because he's willing to die for the sheep, but because he didn't do it by accident. He did it on purpose because he loves us. He loves you. He did it because he was carrying out the Father's plan. We follow him because he is sovereign and life could not be taken from him, but life was given, but his life was given for us. And here's the extension of that. Because his life could not be taken from him, no one can take away the life that he gives. As long as you remain in Jesus, nothing and no one can steal you away. As the hymn by Keith and Kristen Getty says, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. As Paul the Apostle said, and we read a moment ago, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pastor Stephen, I'm, I'm not worried about anything stealing me out of God's hand. Is that so? Then why do Christians still sometimes fear death? Why are we afraid of what people may say about us or do to us? Why do we sometimes react to tragedy the same way that the world does? Why do some Christians still fret and worry about health and money and what the future holds? I'm not at all trying to condemn you if these are your feelings or your experiences or your fears. I am merely saying that you ought to follow the good shepherd. You should set your heart and mind to this in meditation and prayer, that Jesus is the good shepherd, not only because he's noble or morally good, but because he's undefeatable. He's the good shepherd, he's the door, because nothing gets past him, because he is able to do what you need. He laid his life down and he took it up again. No one took it from him, no one gave it back to him. Jesus, according to the Father's plan, did it himself. He is the good shepherd. And so you ought to follow him and you ought to do it with a release of your fear, saying, you know what, Jesus? You're the good shepherd. And that means I don't have to worry that someone will pluck me out of your hand. Even if they take my life, they can't take me away from you. You've promised eternal life. You've promised and demonstrated the resurrection. I don't have to be afraid. Does this mean that this morning you'll say, well, I'm going to follow the good shepherd, and you'll never be tempted to be anxious or to worry or to fear or to care what people think about you? No, you will be. But what I'm encouraging you to do is to bolster your understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice. If you're one of his sheep, bolster your understanding of the good shepherd. He's not the cuddly guy, that, you know, the cuddly white guy you see with long flowing hair in the Latter-day Saints pictures of Jesus holding the lamp. That's not Jesus, all right? That's painted in 1991. It's not even a classic, really, and it's from a cult, all right? That's not who Jesus is. Jesus says he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life and he takes it up again. He's not cuddly, he's not cute, he's all powerful. And he's worthy of following because of that. Not only because he's all powerful, but because he used his power to lay down his own life so that he could give you life. That's what makes the good shepherd worth following. There are lots of shepherds who are after power. And there are even some shepherds who will lay down their life for you. But there is no shepherd like Jesus 
who is both all-powerful and laid down his life for you so that he could take it up again and give you the life that you need. You should follow the good shepherd. In just a moment, we're going to take communion and remember that our good shepherd laid down his life for us. But first, I just want to ask you personally if you have believed in and followed the good shepherd. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ, and today you've heard this straightforward message that Jesus is the door. He's the gate. And no one comes to the Father or gets into eternal life except through him. And maybe you've bought into a whole lot of philosophies and claims of the world. Maybe you've watched a lot of TikTok videos that have convinced you that if you can just figure out who you are and perfect that, then everything will be right inside. If you can just discover and be true to yourself, then everything will be good. And, and that sounds innocuous enough, but it's not innocuous. It's not simple. It's actually a claim from a thief and a robber who wants to destroy your life. Because what that thief and that robber does not tell you is this, that you were actually created to know God. You were created to be in a relationship with him. You weren't created to just figure out who you are and then perfect that or be yourself. You were created so that you could be in relationship with God and only in relationship with him can you know who you are. Can you know what you were intended for? Can you know his purposes and his plans? But the good news is this, that even though maybe you've listened to a lot of worldly philosophy and decided to go your own way, Jesus still loved you. Jesus still gave his life for you when you were still a sinner, when you were like a sheep that had strayed from his fold doing stupid stuff and not listening to his voice. He died for you at that moment. He gave up his life for you and then he took his life up again so that you could follow him. If you'll believe in him, if you'll follow the good shepherd, you'll have eternal life. He'll give it to you. He'll lead you into it. But that means you lay aside all these thieves and robbers and the philosophies of culture and you, you put them away and you say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. These things cannot shepherd my life. I'm gonna trust you to shepherd my life. It means you get behind him, you learn to hear his voice and you follow him and he'll lead you into eternal life. If you have not given your life to the good shepherd, if you've not surrendered to him and said, Jesus, I see that you laid down your life and took it up again to give me new life and I no longer want to run from you, I want to follow you. If that's you this morning, you can't earn your way to Christ, you don't get to enter through the door because you, know, you pay a high fee, Jesus paid the fee. He's the door, but he also opens the door to those who will trust him. He paid the fee by sacrificing himself. And so if you will believe in him, you'll have eternal life. Would you close your eyes for just a moment if you don't have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus and you would like to begin that today? I'm gonna ask you to do this very simple thing. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody here like that? You've not followed the good shepherd. You don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you've been following other ideas, philosophies, or leaders. And today you've heard through the word of God of the good shepherd and you want to know him, you want to follow him. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand so I can pray with you? Is there anybody like that? Anybody else? I'm gonna pray. My words don't save you. I just wanna help you express faith in the good shepherd. And so if 
If you lifted your hand, would you make this prayer your prayer? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given us, and we thank you that you are the good shepherd. Today, Jesus, I confess that I've strayed from you. I've followed other voices, other shepherds, other guides in my life, thinking that they would teach me the right way, but today I recognize that they were thieves and robbers. I thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for me. I believe you did it for me. I believe you gave up your life so that I could be healed and saved and forgiven, but I also believe that you took it up again and you were raised from the dead so that I could have new life. And today, Jesus, I hear your voice in the gospel. I hear your voice in the good news, and I pray that you would help me to follow. Lord, I want to trust you with my whole life. I want to be a part of your flock. I want to enter the fold and be be part of eternal life with you. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to encourage you that after the service, you'd come and speak to one of our prayer partners or pastors. We're gonna take communion this morning and if you didn't receive it as you came in, if you didn't receive uh, a cup as you came in and you would like to partake, uh, this is an open communion, which means you don't have to be a member. We just ask that you be a believer in Jesus. If you didn't receive and you are a believer, if you just lift your hands and we will make sure that you get the elements. This morning we're gonna read a passage. I don't think that I've ever read for the Lord's Supper before, but I think it's a fitting passage. So if you would like to to stand with me. We're going to prepare to read Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to invite you for a moment as we get ready to partake to turn your attention to the portion of this psalm where it says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David, of course, didn't know what Jesus would come to do. He knew that God had promised a a savior, a redeemer, a king like him in the future, a son to sit on the throne, but he didn't know what Jesus would come to do. But prophetically, it seems, David writes of a moment where a good shepherd would prepare a table in the presence of enemies. Remember what happened on the night Jesus was betrayed by Judas? He prepared a table, even in the presence of enemies. Judas, who would betray him, the disciples who would flee from him and abandon him, prepared a table in the presence of enemies so that he could let us understand and know what he has done for us. The table prepared there is the body and blood of our Lord. His sacrifice is what gives us abundant life and the knowledge that we will dwell in God's house forever. Are you feeling a lack of abundant life? Do you have fears of what could be removed from you or that you could be removed from the hand of Christ? Are you distracted by the call of thieves and philosophies that want to steal life and not provide it? 
Maybe currently you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death because of threats around you, because of loss in your life. Today I want to invite you to sit at the table of the Lord for just a moment. And so I had you stand primarily just so that I could have you sit. Would you sit down? We're going to sit. Because the scripture says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I want you to close your eyes for a moment and just imagine this scene. The, th- the threats, the dangers, the fears, the trauma, the pains of your life. And there in the midst of them is the good shepherd. He prepares a table before you right in the middle of all of that. And the table he has prepared is nothing other than his own body and blood. The table that he has made is nothing other than the sacrifice of his own life so that he could take it up again and give you new life. And today as we take communion, that's what we remember. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for our good shepherd that prepares the table before us in the presence of enemies. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us the body of Christ, broken, that we might know that he understands what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death broken that we might understand that he knows what it is to be surrounded by enemies. We thank you that you provided that. And we thank you not only that you provided the body that was broken, but that you raised Jesus from the dead as well. And that by that new life, we understand that you know how to give life when the enemies surround. That you know how to protect in the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus, we thank you so much for that. We remember it. We set our heart to it. Good shepherd, we remember what you've done. Let's take the bread together. Remember in the psalm where it says, my cup runs over. That cup is nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ given for you. And because of that blood, nothing can rip you from Jesus' hand. There's no more abundant cup than the one we're about to drink, the cup of the knowledge I'm saved and secure in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the abundant cup of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that by his blood, we have not only the forgiveness of our sins, but that our consciences have been cleansed. What an abundant cup that where there was once shame and guilt and condemnation, a burden too heavy to walk under, Lord, a life of fear and of running from you, now there is freedom and joy in Jesus. Blessed be your name forever, God, for there is no one like you. No one compares to you. No one could have planned what you planned or did. Jesus, we bless your name. We thank you, good shepherd, that unlike every other shepherd, You are not only powerful, but you are almighty. And you are not only powerful and almighty, but you gave up your life. Today we remember that and we thank you that we're forgiven and cleansed by your blood. Let's take the cup together, church. Now would you stand again with me? And let's just take a moment and praise the Lord. Let's thank our good shepherd. Would you lift up your own voice with me? Would you thank the good shepherd in your own words? Just lift up your own voice and begin to tell him how much you love him, how much you're thankful for what he's done for you, how you are grateful for his leadership and direction in your life, how you're thankful for his comfort, his care, his concern, his protection, his love. Jesus, we love you. 
Good Shepherd, we turn our attention to you. We bless you. We meditate on your goodness. We turn our thoughts towards your greatness, your power, and your love. You are wonderful, Lord. No one is like you. Thank you that you made the way for us. We bless your name. Over and over again, we bless your name. We do not want to forget how good you are. You are the Good Shepherd, Jesus. We love you. We ask that you would help us to follow you more fully and more freely than ever before. Holy Spirit, impress into our hearts and minds what it means to know the voice of the shepherd and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. If you wouldn't mind helping us by taking these and putting them in the wastebasket on the way out, that would be of great help. Have a great day. We'll, we'd love to see you again for second Sunday at 6 tonight. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.